Some of the greatest stories of faith come from God's chosen people in the Old Testament. What can we learn from these men and women who were earnestly seeking God? Walk with us as we capture snapshots of faith from the great cloud of witnesses and the lessons we can learn from them today. I know that was a huge chapter. There's a lot in there. We're going to try to take what we can, but we're talking about David in this snapshot series today. The life of David. And we have to do a little bit of background on David just for a second to catch up. I don't want to assume everybody knows where David's at at this point in his life. David is a fascinating character. There's nobody quite like David in the Bible because he's this warrior. I mean, this guy, you want this guy on your side when you, when you go into a fight. Not that you should fight, but if you did, you'd want David with you. And he can tear people down. He's, he's a man who has blood on his hands. And yet he's a poet. And he's really extremely emotional and in touch with God. And he has this intimacy. He just wants to worship. He, he's just kind of all over the place. He ends up coming, right? He, he's not born a king. He's the son of a shepherd boy. And we've talked about this before. He's the last born son, and he didn't look like a king. He didn't sound like a king, but God chose him. And God said, you're mine. And God anointed David at a really young age, probably somewhere around age 13 to 15, and says, you're going to be king, but not for a long time. It's not until David's 30 that he actually becomes king. And during that time, there's all these amazing things that happen with David, Stories that we're familiar with. David, right, the famous where he fights Goliath, right? Which is crazy, and he chops his head off and all this crazy stuff, right? And in doing so, one of his rewards is he gets to marry Michal, the daughter of Saul. And David is fighting, and then what happens is because Saul realizes that David is going to be the new king, Saul has a little bit of a jealousy issue with, I know none of us here have either. And he decides, I'm going to keep my enemy really close. And then that doesn't work, so he decides to start throwing spears at him. He says, well, maybe I'll just kill him instead. And they do this back and forth thing where David ends up being on the run for years. Years. We read it real fast, but you got to imagine, imagine being on the run for 10 years, living in caves You've been, God has told you, you are going to rule, but he hasn't told you when. Imagine how hard that would be. And he's going through all of that, and God finally kind of works it out. Saul has passed away, Saul has died. David has now been made king over Israel, finally. And one of the things David does is he, he battles some of the Philistines, and then he goes and he conquers the city of Jerusalem conquers the Jebusites. And he says, that is going to be my city. And he names it the city of David. And he decides, I want the ark of God. So the ark was this thing where God's presence dwelled. It was in the holy of holies with the tabernacle. It's where God's presence dwelled on the mercy seat. And David says, I want that as close to me as possible. I want that in my city. Saul didn't do anything with the ark. David has this longing to be close to God. And so that's kind of where we get to when we get to chapter 6 in 2 Samuel. But another thing we have to note about David is David is a flawed character. 
David is the guy who gains it all and then goes to Vegas and loses it all. He's just this kind of guy. He's this guy who saves people's lives and then murders other people. He's this guy who does these incredible things and then messes up so bad. And he has a lot of mess ups coming after this story. He's flawed. But he also repents and he turns back to God. And he's all over the place. And I think this is one of the reasons why we like David. David feels like one of us. He's one of the people. Because at different points in your life, I'm sure you might resonate with David. When you do something, God does something through you that you thought was impossible, like slaying Goliath. Or when you do something else that seemed impossible, like you do a really horrible thing that hurts people. David did those things too. Or when you go to David's story and it gives you the courage to repent and turn back to God like he does in Psalm 51. See, we resonate with David. He feels a lot like us. And David is anointed. He's the man after God's own heart. So the question is why? What does it mean to be the Lord's anointed? Because I believe that God has called and anointed every one of you as well. So there's some things that this passage, I think, is going to teach us about what that means. And I want to say this. It's not the good things David did or the bad things that David did that made him anointed. He was anointed because God chose him. And God has chosen you. So it has to be more than that. What I think is fascinating about David that we're going to see in the story is David's ability. What he does because he's anointed. What do you do in light of the fact that God has called you? How will you react when things get off course? It's in those moments that I think David becomes this incredible example for you and for me today. David was relentless in his desire for God, right, for the ark. Even in the midst of failure, which we're going to talk about. Here's the thing, but God wanted to do more in David's life than David ever imagined. God had a bigger thing going on, and I believe he says the same thing to you today. So I want to jump into this passage. I want to say a couple things to set up so you understand how I'm going to talk about this. When I read this passage, and Matt did an incredible job reading it with all those hard names, uh, one of the things I noticed is there's some patterns here. And if you really read it, it's the story of David moving the ark, but it's the story of David moving the ark two times. He does it twice in this passage. And there very similar, but they're different. They're paralleled kind of like this. And at the kind of the end point of each parallel is this blessing that happens. And in one case, this house of Obed-Edom, and we'll talk a little bit about him later, he gets blessed. And then when David moves it the second time, a whole bunch more people get blessed. And I want you to pay attention to the blessing because I think God and the author of this is trying to get us to pay attention to that. So I'm going to walk through this passage, and hopefully we learn some things, and I think God's really going to speak to us today. So the first thing that happens is David moves the ark, like Matt read. They move it. They're they're worshiping. They got every instrument known to man out there. It's this crazy praise party thing. I mean, they're dancing, right? They're moving the ark on this brand new cart, right? So they're like, you know, let's get a new one, right? We're not going to get a U-Haul. We're going to get something real nice, And they're moving the ark and they're doing their thing. And then the ark stumbles and Uzzah, who's one of the Levites, he touches it and he grabs it and he dies. How many of you have heard this story before? I never understood this. 
I feel like it'd be a bad day to be Uzzah. Right? I got to tell you, if you're a priest and you're moving the ark, I think the last thing that you ever want to have happen is the ark fall down on your watch. Right? That seems like, I don't even know what would happen if the ark falls. I don't know if there's even what happens. But it's like you're, you're, on, you're moving, you're moving, let's say, you're moving a couch or something for your buddies. You're moving a couch like up the stairs in this impossible situation. And you don't want to be the person who's like drops their corner. And because they drop their corner, the whole thing falls. And then you have to try to blame it on someone else, you know, so it doesn't look bad. They're carrying, they're moving this ark, right? It stumbles. What is happening? Why does Uzzah die? What did he do? And there's a lot going on here because if you look at the kind of the Hebrew here, it's not like Uzzah does this thing like, I'm going to sin against God. I'm going <laughs> to, he's trying to do a good thing. And it costs him his life, right? He does this irreverent act and he dies. So I want to encourage you, whenever you come to something in the Bible, you're like, I don't get that. The answer's in the text. If you go look somewhere else, I guarantee you will find the answer. And that's what we find here. Now, this is really interesting, and I promise you this is going to help us make sense of this passage. If you go to Numbers chapter 4, I'm sure you don't read the book of Numbers a lot, but in case you did, there's all these instructions to the priest and all these crazy people about all this stuff that maybe for us we're like, I'm not a priest, I don't know. But it's really relevant to Uzzah. And there's all of these instructions about when they move the ark of God, how they're supposed to do it. And in chapter 4, verse 15, it says this, after Aaron and his sons had finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, when the camp is ready to go, so remember, the tabernacle is going to move around. So God gives very specific instructions. Only then are the Kohathites to come and do the carrying. They're part of the Levites. But they must not touch the holy things of God or they will die. The Kohathites are to carry those things that are in the tent of meeting. So it doesn't take like a great interpreter to figure out what it's saying. If you touch God's stuff, <laughs> you're going to die. So if they know their Bible, they shouldn't be surprised that this guy just died. Right? If you touch God's things, they're offending the holiness of God. We've got to remember, we are dealing with the God that is completely other. God is so beyond us, and God gave very specific instructions about how they were supposed to do things. And you say, okay, Danny, that's interesting. But if you keep reading, like I'm sure you guys all read the book of Numbers, right? Like I said, if you go to chapter 7, there's something even more interesting. That helps us understand what's happening here. In chapter 7, the leaders of Israel give the Levites a bunch of oxen and carts. Right? So, so that the Levites don't have to carry all this stuff. Right? It's a lot of stuff to carry. So like, hey, we're going to give you some carts. We're going to give you some trailers, some oxen to make your load easier. Right? You're like, that's like a really nice thing to do. God's like, that works for me. So they give some to the Levites to do this. But in verse 9 of chapter 7, listen to this. But Moses did not give any to the Kohathites because they were to carry on their shoulders the holy things for which they were responsible. So if you remember the story Matt read, they were moving the ark on a cart. God expressly told them, yeah, you don't get to move this thing on wheels. You have to carry this on your shoulders. See, the, the ark had um, these little ringlets and they would put these big pieces of wood through and they would each have to carry it. You don't get to push God. <laughs> this is a good metaphor, right? 
I don't know if you carry God either. But anyways, they're supposed to carry the ark. Why do I say all this? One, I say this because they didn't know their text. They got away from the scriptures. Two, if they had been doing this the way God called them to do, Uzzah would have never died. Because if they're carrying it, there's no oxen. And if there's no oxen, the oxen can't stumble. And if they don't stumble, no one has to grab the ark, and this guy's not dead. That would have been really good news for Uzzah. They got away from the words of God. See, God is completely just to strike Uzzah down, but it was completely avoidable on David's part. They could have avoided this whole thing. See, when we lose sight of God's word and his instructions for us, we stumble and we lose our way. It's just going to happen. Now, you may not touch an ark and be, you know, killed, but I'm sure we all could share a story of when we've got away from what God says and it takes us off course and somebody gets hurt. And so what happens in this is the second thing is that David's angry and he's afraid of the Lord. And we see this because of David's reaction. How will the ark of the Lord ever come to me? How is it ever going to get to me? And David's confused because David's like, I got good intentions. I'm trying to do a good thing. Trying to do a good thing. But here's the thing about David. Remember, he's flawed like us. David's got this tenacity. And I know some of you get fired up about stuff. You know when you get so fired up about something, you're like, we've got to do this. And you do it, and it just doesn't go right. Because David's desire for God does not mean that David can do whatever he wants. That's not how it works. God had instructions for how to do things. And David's reaction is not this. It's not, he doesn't seem to be prostrate. Oh, Uzzah, Uzzah died. And his, his reaction is, how will the ark of the Lord ever come to me? You notice that? It's a little bit selfish, if I could say. David's really focused on getting something there for himself. And it tells you something about desire. And I want to say to you today, desire is powerful. Desire is so powerful. Desire can be for good things. It can be for bad things. But desire is tricky. We know this from Genesis 3. At the fall, it says this in verse 6. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for Guinea wisdom, she took some and ate of it. See, desire is creeping at the door of your heart and it's longing to get out. And it wants you to bypass processes that are healthy for you. It's creeping at your door. It was creeping at David's door. Unchecked desires cause us to bypass the right way to do things. We bypass the process and people get hurt we all know this maybe a couple of examples you fall in love with someone right you get married you love this person it's a good thing right love is good but you you start to love them so much that you get controlling and overbearing and you actually start to hurt the relationship because your desire can get off track we do this with our kids too. You love your kids, right? As a parent, I'm supposed to protect my kids. 
but I could very easily, because of a good intention, start to shelter them so much to the point that I actually stunt what God wants to do in their life. And it actually becomes unhealthy for them. We know that these things happen, these good things that start out, but we get off track. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that appears to be right, but in the end leads to death. See, we can't just go off what we think is right. We gotta go off what God says is right. David and the Levites got off track. David let his desire of God's, he let his desire get ahead of God's process. He got out ahead of God. When we let our desires get out ahead of God, we are no longer being led by God. You're out in kind of like no man's land. When I was reading this, I kept picturing um, the, uh, the movie uh, Top Gun, the first Top Gun. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to reference Top Gun. I'm not saying go watch it. I'm just, anyways. And, you know, Maverick, the main character, is this guy who's like an incredible pilot, right? He's the man, but he, he gets a little off course, right? And there's a thing that his admiral, whatever, says to him at some point. He sits him down. He's like, Maverick, your ego is writing checks. Your body can't cash. And I think David was kind of doing the same thing. When our desires get out ahead of God, man, we are all by ourselves out there. And people, not just us, other people around us start to get hurt. And that is not what God wants for us. And what ends up happening in the story in the first moving of the ark is that God ends up blessing the house of Obed-Edom. See, God wanted to do so much more than bless this little localized house. I mean, Obed-Edom's like, sweet! He's got the ark. Things are going good for him. Right? Because David's like, well, we can't keep moving this thing. Something's wrong. We gotta, like, stop. And so it sits there for three months. And here's what I picture happening. Picture David's got this throne, and each morning some guy comes in and gives him a report. David's eating his breakfast or whatever. And this kid comes in, he's like, all right, David, here's the things that are happening today. Hey, uh, just by the way, that guy where the ark is, Obed-Edom, like, man, things are going really good for him. His sheep are sheeping, and his flocks are flocking, and there's a lot of them, and he's got, like, a lot more money and stuff. And, man, and David's like, I knew it. I wanted that thing in Jerusalem. Because he knew that God was going to bless. And so David decides to move the ark again. But this is where it gets interesting. Hang with me. He moves it again in verse 12. But it says this, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And if we remember the story from the first time, right, they moved it on a cart. And this time, they're carrying it. Did you catch that? They're carrying the ark. Somebody went back to the text. Here's what I think happened. David's like, hey, we've got to figure this thing out. We need a committee. He's a good CRC guy. We need a committee. You're going to meet every Tuesday night from 7 to 9, and we're just going to figure this thing out. And here's the thing. They do. David, whoever did it, they went back to the Bible because 1 Chronicles 15.2 tells us this. It's, this. it's another telling of the same story. It says, David says, no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God because the Lord chose them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. And this is where we get to David. This is what makes David awesome. Is David is willing to pivot. He's willing to turn. He's willing to learn. 
He makes this big mistake. It costs someone their life. But that doesn't stop David. He's able to repent. He's able to say, I messed this thing up and we have to figure out what happened because we need to get to Ark to Jerusalem. See, being anointed and called by God means that we must be willing to admit wrong and learn from our mistakes. I know this is hard. I struggle with this. I, nobody likes saying I'm wrong. It's difficult. But we all make mistakes. We just do. Even when we're trying to do good things, things still go off. And part of being led by God is by is saying, admitting that we got off course. This is why confession and repentance is essential to the Christian life. It's why we just did that this morning already. Where we're reminded of, of how lost we are. And then we sing amazing grace. We're reminded that we are saved by grace alone through faith. That it's not our failures that define us, but God's grace and who he says we are that define who we are. David knew how to do that. And I want to challenge you. Are you willing to repent and turn and reorient yourself back to God? We have to learn how to do this because we're always going to be making mistakes. But not only does David do that, which is incredible, he changes his worship. And this is where the story gets really crazy. He doubles down. And the text says that they're moving the ark. So remember, they got their whole worship party going. They're dancing, they're trumpeting, they're whatever instruments they had. And it says every six steps, I wasn't counting, let's assume it's here, they sacrifice a bull and a fatted calf. And the text seems to imply that every six steps, they're making a sacrifice. Which is pretty crazy because they have to go six miles. About. So, if you did the math, you're sacrificing two things every six steps, you're talking about 10,000 sacrifices. If this is right. And you might be thinking, I'm like, no way. <laughs> no way. That's so much work. I mean, think about this. You would have a trail of sacrifice and blood all the way to Jerusalem, which is kind of, we, I'm not even going to get into that because that could tie into other things, but that's interesting. But I'll tell you this, if you go to 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon dedicates the temple, this is David's son, he offers 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. This amount of sacrifices is not unprecedented. It could happen. What's the point? My point is that David seems to shift and make this move of the ark all about God and his glory. This is not about David getting the ark to me anymore. This is about celebrating and rejoicing in who God is and worshiping God and giving everything that he can. He learns from his mistakes. It doesn't stop him though. See, David doesn't wallow in sin and shame. He repents, he learns, he makes adjustments, and he moves forward with a desire that is in line with God's instructions. And I want you to hear me today. This is where so many of us get stuck. We mess up, we are trying to do a good thing, we fall into the pit, and we stay there. And we wallow in our shame and self-pity. And I get it because I've been there. 
God does not want you to stay there. God is not trying to shame you. And I'll say this, staying in that place is selfish because your eyes are on yourself. What David does is he like, David is like, he messes up big time. And he repents and then he moves on with even a greater desire to worship God. Don't get stuck. Go back to God and then move forward because God does so much more for your life. And what's interesting is instead of in this telling of the ark being moved, instead of Uzzah dying, there's another death of sorts. It's his wife, Michal. This is Saul's daughter, right? So in this telling, she goes barren because she despises David's worship. So she doesn't die, but her lineage dies, which is interesting. And she sees David worshiping. It says she saw him. So she's not there participating in the worship. She's looking at it. And David's dancing. David's got his little ephod on. He's just, he's doing his thing. And she's not participating. And she is offended that he would do this. She's not participating. She's worried, it seems, about how this reflects on David, which then how it reflects on her, which means her eyes are just on herself. Very much kind of how David's eyes seem to be in the first telling. They've kind of swapped spots a little bit. And David says in verse 21 that it was before the Lord that he was doing this, that he will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more indignified. I will be humiliated in my own eyes. David's like, I am doing this for God's glory. I don't care what you think. That word, um, undignified, in the Hebrew, in other places it's translated cursed or to invoke harm. Like David is willing to allow harm to come to himself for the sake of giving God glory. How many of us could say that? That is a difficult thing to think about. Am I willing to pay the price for my worship? This is not an easy thing, but it reminds me so much of Paul in Galatians 1.10, who says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God, or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. If we're going to serve God, our worship is going to offend other people. David reminds us that our true worship of God will always be costly. Worship is always costly. Next thing is that David celebrates. The first time he was angry and afraid. Remember that? How's the ark going to get to me this time? He is celebrating. Right? He's sacrificing. And what's interesting too is he gets, like there's this abundance, right? David's given date cakes and raisin cakes. And it's like Oprah. He's like, car for you, car. He's just giving these things out. He's, he's blessing the people in the name of the Lord. See, out of his worship, when you are on God's glory, it is so easy to be generous to other people. Because your eyes aren't on yourself. And I'm not just talking about like finance. I'm just talking about when you're worship and you are locked into God, it is so much easier just to let stuff go. You're not as bothered. You can forgive people. You can show grace to people that like the other day, you're like, I'm not showing grace to that person. People annoy you less, right? When we're focused on God, it becomes easier to be a dispenser of these things, to give out mercy and love and grace. See, we worship God focusing on his glory alone. His abundance flows out of our lives. It's incredible. And then in the end, the Lord blesses the house of David. 
not just the house of Obed-Edom. God is going to bless something bigger. And this is where it gets really interesting. In uh, 2 Samuel 7, 1, it says that after the king had settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. So what happens after this scene is that God brings shalom to the nation of Israel. David has set his sights on God. He's moved the ark the right way. And God brings peace to the whole nation. God wasn't just trying to bless one little house. God wanted to bless the entire nation. But it gets even bigger than that. See, God wanted to do more in David's life than David ever anticipated. And I believe Jesus wants to do that in your life as well. If you were to read chapter 7, God in chapter 7 makes a covenant with David that is very connected to you and me today. God says to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God was trying to do something in David's life that would stretch through all of time. Jesus is the son of David. If this doesn't happen, we are not here today. Think about that. If God doesn't make that covenant, if David doesn't learn these things, this doesn't happen. We are directly connected to this story. That's how incredible this book is. It's relevant for you and for me today. And so I want, as we close, I want you to think about this. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, because God makes a covenant with David, we are here and we don't need an ark and we don't need 10,000 sacrifices, thankfully. Because we, through Jesus Christ and him paying the price of our sin on the cross and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we have the ark of God living inside our hearts. The thing that David always longed for, you have if you are in Christ. It's absolutely incredible. But like David, sometimes we want to kind of keep it to ourselves. And God says, no, 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 no. I want to use you to bless other people. We've been blessed to be a blessing. God wants to do more in your life and in my life, in our collective life as a church, than we ever thought possible. But it takes us continually being willing to repent and reorient our lives to God and to say, God, what do you want us to do? What are you calling me to do? Because you have been anointed, you have been called, you have been chosen. But not just for yourselves. You've been chosen to love God and to love your neighbors around you. And to watch God do things that we never thought were possible. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your scriptures that still speak to us today. And like David, we are flawed people. We may not want to admit that, but we are. And God, in this moment, I ask that you would speak to us and that we would speak back to you, that we would be willing to admit before you and to others when we get off track. And God, we want to be like David and have the courage to repent and to turn back to you. Because we know that you want to do something in our lives that is supposed to bless other people. 
God, we don't want to have our eyes just on ourselves. We want to be people who worship you truly, who are willing to give costly worship. And we ask that you, we want you to bless those around us, God. God, we thank you that you never give up on us, that it is by your grace that we are saved. And we thank you for your great love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.